is rock and roll. Strange tales of modern music. And now it's drums, part two. The post-war era, it was full of musical change. Big bands, remember those from part one? Well, they were on decline by now. And jazz moved from packed ballrooms to smaller venues played by smaller groups of musicians. Some jazz fans welcomed the change. It became hip to be exclusive. Meanwhile, most of the American public embraced male and female vocalists on the radio and in the record shops. Tommy Dorsey and Benny Goodman took a back seat to singers like Frank Sinatra and the Andrews Sisters. Singers that were familiar faces to many soldiers who saw them overseas thanks to shows sponsored by the USO. As the 40s became the 50s, the dreamy sound of post-war pop balladeers like Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Doris Day benefited from lush strings and piano backing. Maybe some horns, too, but showy drum fills and instrumental solos? They were as unpopular as an air raid siren. Blue moon, you knew just what I was there for. But there was other dance music being heard. There was race music or rhythm and blues that relied on its rhythm section. Even though at the beginning, the drums had a minor role on a lot of recordings, it was the bass doing most of the heavy lifting. Even when the drums were heard, the playing was often pretty basic, stripped down and simplified from the heyday of the big bands 15 years earlier. One important factor I found when I was researching this story was the rivalry between Musicians Union and the recording industry. A lot of restrictions were put on union members when they tried to make a record because the record company might not be willing to pay union royalties. This became a roadblock to big bands that wasn't there before uh, about the middle 1940s. When R&B, country music, and rock and rollers came on the scene, they were often independent of the union, so they didn't need to bother with all that. Perhaps the biggest change to come to popular music in that era was the change from disc recording to magnetic tape. Recording on magnetic tape replaced the costly and time-consuming direct-to-disc process of the early 20th century. Run a full reel through a tape recorder and capture sound. If you didn't like what you recorded, you could wind the tape back onto the original reel and just try it again, replacing the original recording with a new one. Um, we can either do that one again or go on to another number, but bear with us for a little while. Compare that with a phonograph disc, where you were actually cutting the sound vibrations into a soft material as it rotated on a spindle. The changes you made to the surface of the disc were permanent, no going back. So it was easy to try something new when a bad take could be re-recorded on the same piece of tape a few minutes later, instead of throwing away an expensive blank disc and unboxing a new one. As rhythm and blues drummers, jazz masters, and rock drummers continued to come up with new ways to bang out a beat, one of the first to make a name for himself in this new era was James Brown's sideman Clyde Stubblefield. The most famous example of Clyde's sound is 1970's The Funky Drummer. For much of the song, Brown is just one of many musical elements as Clive's groove lock beat becomes the heart of the tune. 
As the tape rolls, the band make it up as they go, with James directing the action. You don't have to do no soloing, brother, just keep what you got. Don't turn it loose, because it's a mother. When I count to four, I want everybody to lay out and let the drummer go. And when I count to four, I want you to come back in. You see, by the 70s, musicians were so comfortable working with the audio tape medium that they could record everything they did in the studio and just keep the best bits. Meanwhile, on the California coast, surf music combos were popping up everywhere. Although best known for their use of the tremolo bar, which gave the electric guitar a quasi-Hawaiian sound, the surf bands also had a distinctive drumming sound a snare-dominated beat with frequent jazz-style fills that often exploded into short solos, all within a two to three minute time frame. California's ventures balanced on the crest of the surf music wave for quite a while, doing their versions of little-known songs, writing some original tunes, and rearranging some classics. For example, Richard Rogers' Slaughter on 10th Avenue got the Ventures treatment. As television became popular, the golden age of radio shows faded, and radio stations found that they could be quite profitable spinning records all day. On the radio, as well as at home, cheap, short-playing 45 RPM records were the thing for popular music listeners. Those were the ones with the big holes in the middle. You could stack them up on an automatic changer for a party soundtrack that mixed several different artists and lasted about a half hour. In the middle 1960s, the long-playing, or LP, record let listeners spend about the same amount of time with one artist. At first, LPs were just collections of short singles, but adventurous songwriters began to use the LP's longer running time to break the two to four minute sound barrier. With more room to grow, musical technique expanded, and despite some grumblings from jazz fanatics and older pop music fans, I guess older would be over 25, Rock musicians developed their technique and got a lot of respect from their fans. The experimental 60s grew into the 70s, a decade that eventually became so diverse that it fractured into many sub-genres. Record and tape collections expanded like an accordion in living rooms, bedrooms, and, oh, I don't know, spare rooms above the garage, I guess. How far an artist could go creatively? Well, that was only limited by their ability, imagination, and the loyalty of their fans and probably the patience of their record company. The drumming style could go in just about any direction at this point as musicians drew on what had come before and what looked like it might be just down the road and they created the sound they wanted today even if it was the sound of tomorrow. A lot of hit records of the 60s featured the Motown sound popularized by that label's studio musicians who backed countless hit makers. Today, we know that studio collective as the Funk Brothers, although they were anonymous at the time. By the 70s, you could hear Marvin Gaye breaking from the Motown sound with the bongo-backed What's Going On, 
And what do you know, it featured the very same Funk Brothers rhythm section. You could hear a little of history repeating itself in jazz rock drummer Danny Seraphine's licks on Chicago's second album. Uh, that's the silver one. Yeah, it sounds like Danny was a fan of big band drummers like Buddy Rich. The Who's Keith Moon became known for his high energy fills. In fact, they expanded to the point where his rampaging drums, well, they were all over the song emphasizing the music's peaks a lot like Roger Daltrey's vocal shouts. Keith's playing, it was typically aggressive, some would say manic, and it utilized just about every sound his kit could produce. On the other hand, he was able to back off and let the song breathe when it needed to. His keen understanding of dynamics was one of the Who's defining features. Some drummers readily embraced drum machines. Well, they came on the scene in the early 70s, originally as gadgets to help the musicians rehearse when a real drummer wasn't available. Phil Collins, in particular, in the uh, progressive rock and pop music genres, was one of the first guys to bring the drum machine into the studio and put it on a record. Already known for his distinctive, hard-hitting style with creative drum fills and a loud, deep tom-tom sound, Phil was among the first to feature a drum machine prominently in a rock song. It was an early model made by Roland Electronics of Japan, and it became front and center in the opening bars of Genesis' song Duchess from 1980. A few months later, Phil based the menacing heartbeat riff heard on Peter Gabriel's Intruder from 1981 on the cold mechanical thumps of a drum box. Machine imitates man who then imitates... With the coming of digital technology, it soon became possible to record high quality sound into an electronic circuit. But this was well before digital recording came along and you couldn't do a whole song this way. It was very expensive and truly at the outer limits of what was possible at the time, but a drum beat only lasted a second or two, so digital machines like the LM1 from California's Lynn Electronics came on the scene with a highly realistic drum sound. Along with the Lynn, came a lot of controversy about musicians allowing their work to be sampled by a machine that could later be used to replace them in the studio and on stage. As progress marched on, drum machines were joined by electronic drums, in particular the multicolored polygonal shaped units produced by Simmons in the UK. 80s rock and pop was defined as much by electronic drums as by the keyboards. 
Both could be automated by selecting a sequencer function. This often was the sound heard on 1980s dance club floors. Omar Hakim, known for bringing exotic world beats to the sound of the American group Weather Report in the 70s, leveraged his proficiency with drum machine programming to become one of the most versatile studio musicians all the way up through the turn of the last century, appearing on recordings by Miles Davis, Dire Straits, and Mariah Carey, as well as solo work. He won't stop till he gets after the century turned, technology, well, I'd say it leveled off, and changing trends determined the sound of today. In what you might think of as 21st century return to basics, electronic drums like the ones from Simmons and Remo and other companies, they practically disappeared from the rock scene. 20 teens rock bands favor an acoustic sound, but it's hard to say what is typical with so many different sticks hitting skins for their respective bands. The big, bold sound of Paul McCartney's drummer Art Laboreal Jr. is one way to make the noise. The energetic, sophisticated sound of Christopher Guanlao shows a bit of prog rock influence in this song from Silver Sun Pickups. Recent American pop music, on the other hand, well, it's almost abandoned acoustic drums, going way back to an electronic beat sound that doesn't even try to sound like the real thing. The vintage and the shiny new sometimes stand side by side. Here's a good example, Summit, by DJ producer dubstepper Skrillex. I'd say it kind of fuses the 70s Kraftwerk synthesizer sound with 21st century cut and paste production. It's simple and elaborate at the same time. And uh, it looks like the cycle has come around once again. This is Pat Barr.